Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Martina Hingis, Goran Ivanisevic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. That is a massive discount. I hope you take advantage of it. Arete Complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. The towel was originally created to deal with the slipping and sliding that happens in hot yoga. Arete Complete is the official towel of Peloton, and the tennis towels are unbelievable, ultra-absorbent, beautifully designed works of art. The colors pop like nothing I've really ever seen. They come in a tennis court green, an Aussie open blue, a red clay, and they have a very cool labor cup gray. Sweat management is a real thing. I play with wristbands and headbands, but the towel is key. And as you guys know, there's just nothing worse than not being able to grip the racket or manage your sweat. These towels are ultra absorbent. They are the solution to those problems. See them at A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com and use the code SHAP20 in all caps for 20% off of your order. He was born in Newport, Rhode Island and for the past 25 years has reported on global sports for the New York Times from over 70 countries on six continents. He is the preeminent tennis writer for the Times and has covered over 90 Grand Slam tournaments. He reports on all the hot-button topics that pop up in tennis. Christopher Clary is today's guest, and this is the year in review. Can you hear me? I can hear you great, Craig. And, and are you in Massachusetts? Do I have that right? Yeah, I'm, in the, I'm on the north shore of, uh, of Boston, about 35, 40 miles north in the Newburyport area up here. You're near Gloucester. I'm near Gloucester. I'm not that close, but I'm you know, 20 miles away or so, yeah. What about the perfect storm? No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, uh, that's Gloucester. You know, we're pretty close to Pilgrim country up here. So you got places like uh, Ipswich and Portsmouth, New Hampshire is close by, those kind of places. Gentlemen, you hear the line under his articles each and every time says that he has covered global sports for the Times, and that's the New York Times, and the International Herald Tribune for more than 25 years from bases in France, Spain, and the United States. His specialties are tennis, soccer, the Olympic Games, and sailing. But really, he is, for me, the premier tennis writer there is. And that's Christopher Clary. My man, it's a pleasure to, uh, to see you. Yeah, you too, Craig. I've enjoyed listening to your show over the last few years. I always get excited when we have world number ones on our show. And for me, as far as the tennis writers go, you are uh, in the conversation. As you know, we do a five-set format, but I really want this to be the year-end review with you. When I was researching to do this, I saw, you know, you really... You really kiss every moment of the year in a special way. So let's move directly. Let's start this into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. We saw each other in Australia. Is there a a moment or a storyline that stands out for you from the top of the year? Well, I guess it's just how much, as humans, we – we can adapt and change to, to bad news, basically, because the fact of it is, I mean, 
I went down there as you did in a lot of us kind of in you know, disaster mode because of the bushfires and, and all the issues that were racking the game, you know, that were less important than that, but things like the ATP cup that would come into play. Those seemed like big deals at the time. You know, that was, those were big concerns. And um, the issue with the fire dominated the coverage in many ways. So that was, that was certainly on everybody's mind. And the Australians were concerned about, you know, tourism and receipts being down and arguments over prize money and things like that. So it was all, it all seemed pretty important at the time. And boy, does it seem like a different, <laughs> a different thing now and insignificant compared to what we've all been through as a planet and a sport in, in a minor key since then. Man, do you remember the qualies were, were controversial because the air quality was tragic? Of course. And that, that was, you know, that was making major headlines. Major headlines. My editors in New York were all over this, the topic, all over the issue. And, you know, it hit all those buttons of global ecology, climate change, those sorts of things. And, um, you know, sport trying to make money despite all these issues. And that was just hit by a tsunami of more important, you know, more earth shattering things very soon. And I remember leaving Australia, Craig, and I went off and um, I, I went headed toward uh, South Africa after that, actually. And I was uh, at the airport in Perth and things were already, you know, the headlines were starting to shift toward the uh, coronavirus a little bit, especially down there because it was closer. And I was more going through the airport and half the flights were already closed down because most of the tourism and commerce goes to China from there. And the city was already half shut down. That was the very end of, uh, of January, early February. So that was for me kind of a premonition. Ooh, well, that's maybe a, we're going to be seeing a lot of other places very soon. Man, you know what? I felt the same thing. We, when I left town, uh, I left on uh, the finals weekend on Saturday and people were masked up at Melbourne airport and it was different. <laughs> so my memory of Australia really is that it's just that, you know, and I, I also remember you know, how amazingly good Novak looked and I was thinking, Hey, like I think almost every year, uh, grand slam possible. And boy, that, that sure didn't happen either for a lot of reasons. Just to backtrack a second, the tournament ended up being an awesome tournament. I actually think that I was sitting next to you and Joel Drucker when Fed played Sangren, which was one of the, you know, Fed saved uh, seven match points. That was really the last time we saw Fed uh, <laughs> for the year, yeah, you yeah. know, that week. Unless you were one of the 50,000 people in Cape Town there watching him and, and Rafa play in South Africa and their exhibition. But meaningful tennis, you know, that counts, yeah, for sure. And, uh, well, obviously the Novak match for a set was pretty compelling, and after that, not. But the, uh, the Roger and, and the way he played that match was certainly at least he got one highlight out of 2020. Yeah, I mean, that was just, I mean, for him to save off those match points was wild. What were your observations of the women's draw, Sophia Kennan coming through, Muguruza playing well up until she got leveled by Kennan. Well, I think, Craig, you know, you asked about what sticks with you, and that's kind of what it is, right? At the end of a year or the end of a decade, you go back and what sort of images come to mind, what moments stay with you. I think that's a lot of the things that really count down the road and how tennis, tennis ends up getting defined. Um, but for me, you know, Kennan, third set, love 40 down on her serve. And the match against Muguruza, I mean, that's some amazing tennis, clutch, ice cold, just shot making, high quality. I, I watched it again just a couple of days ago, 
And it was just as I remembered it. I mean, she was just fearless and so precise and counterpunching. And Muguruza was playing extremely well in the in that game. And you know, Sophia won five straight points, four of them with winners, clean winners against you know pretty deep shots. And so that for me was the defining moment of that competition from the woman's side, for sure. Man, you know, I watched Kenan. I got off the plane, and she was – she somehow dumped a set to Coco Goff, and then she beat her 6-love in the third, blew her off the court. And I was low to the court, behind the court in uh, Margaret Court, I think, arena is where, she, where they played that match. And I hadn't seen her play from that – from that vantage point before. And I felt like she had like an Agassi quality ball striking quality about her. The cleanness and the timing was something special. Yeah. She's got some really great sort of fast twitch geometry there from tight to the baseline. She can really create some angles that surprise top players pretty consistently. And that makes what happened you know, later in the year even more impressive. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But yeah. Where were you for the Indian Wells cancellation? <laughs> I, was heading, I was heading there. I was just about to leave with my family. We were in, uh, in Berkeley visiting my oldest daughter and uh, getting ready to pack up the crew and head out. And, and word came out that the uh, tournament was going to be canceled altogether. We knew there was going to be some issues already, but it happened so fast and I remember at the time thinking, wow, you know, they got one case in the county. Is this what they should be doing? And this is a lot of people that are already in motion. I knew a bunch of players were already there. Obviously, they played the, uh, you know, the Oracle Challenger there week before. People were on site practicing. They already had all the people in the hotel rooms, everything booked. And I remember thinking, you know, geez, this seems like an extreme sort of thing. They can't find a way to make it work. They'd sent out all these uh, guidelines for the for the, the tour and for visitors, you know, with the hand gel dispensers and all these different things. It reads like a, like a hundred year old artifact. Now when you read it, it just seemed like, you know, they were trying with the information that they had to make this thing work. And suddenly it just became unworkable and boy, were they right about that. And boy, was it the right move in retrospect? But yeah, I was in Berkeley and getting ready to hop in the rental car and drive South and ended up not making that trip. Now, did you write to it? Did you cover the cancellation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that was the first that was really the first major sports event to go down before the NBA and all that stuff. So that became a big deal for everybody. And who did you speak to uh, when to report that story? I was talking to some of the players who were on site and some of the coaches who were down there already, just sort of saying, you know, what are you all feeling about this? And is this the right move from your perspective? Talked to a couple of fans as well who were down, um, who'd had tickets and obviously we're just questioning the decision at the time. So you don't try to go to Ray Moore. You don't try to go to Tommy Haas or you do. No, we definitely try. Those guys shut it down. I was in some ways very surprised by that. Um, you know, they do a good job of that tournament and Tommy and those guys, they went to ground. Maybe that was what, you know, Larry Ellison and the guys who uh, have real control of that tournament wanted it that way, but they really shut down their operations. And that, to me, that was a, sometimes a missed opportunity in the short term anyway, because it seemed like they were over overreacting. I think down the road, maybe that was the long play they were making in terms of access and communication. I think it was the right move. We'll just we'll just hit it now. Uh, in uh, Wertheim tweeted that a cancellation for 2021 is imminent. Um, do you have any interesting information about that? You know, my feeling on that is that they're not going to do it again in a compromised way after having had to call the whole thing off and 
And I think um, luckily a guy like Ellison who owns a tournament has the margin and wherewithal to be able to make those, those kind of calls and do things in an optimal way. And the way California is going right now, if you're making plans, do you really believe in, in March having a, having full stadiums or even half full stadiums? It's, it's very hard to imagine that or conceive of that looking at the way things are going. So, you know, could they do it behind closed doors? Yes. But I think a lot of their receipts and meaning and everything else comes from uh, having that atmosphere in the desert that everybody likes and enjoys. What's your opinion of when we moved out of Indian Wells, how some of the more entrepreneurial people in tennis tried to stay nimble. Uh, Moritoglu created an event. There were some kind of rinky-dink exos and stuff. What, did, what was your opinion of that? And what, were you, and what were you doing during that moment? I mean, that was a real limbo moment, wasn't it? You know, it's funny. I think in a lot of ways this year, you know, as an observer of the game and a journalist, somebody who's covered it for so long, I think the initial reaction when this all started to shut down was you knew it was probably going to last a fair bit of time. Not as long, perhaps, as it ended up lasting, but you knew that right away. So there was going to be this gap. And I frankly felt like we might sort of stop covering the sport altogether in some ways at the times and, not, and sort of move on to other things and put the manpower elsewhere. That was not the call that they made or we made. And I think it was really, really one of the most interesting years I've had covering tennis, even though there was very little tennis to cover for a while, because in some ways, sort of like when you put a, uh, a piece of clay in a kiln, right? If it's done right, and you put the extreme heat on it, you'll get a beautiful object. But if something's quite a little wrong with the structure, it'll crack, it'll explode, it won't make it through. And I think in a lot of ways, what we just went through was some pretty extreme heat with the sport and to sort of see the choices that were made, people who rose to the surface and did a good job, people who kind of faded away, the cracks that appeared was fascinating. I learned a lot about the business of the sport during that period as well. But as far as the calls that were made, I think, the problem of tennis is eternally the situation with the divided governance. And though there were a lot of attempts to kind of bridge some of those divides, ultimately that worked against the sport and that it was hard to have coordinated approaches. And I give guys like Maura Tuglu full credit. They saw opportunities. Sport needs to continue going in some fashion. You need to get these players, uh, you know, some job opportunities some paychecks. UTR obviously did the same thing. There was a fair bit of entrepreneurship, but it took a while for it to really get going. I think the tours, if you had a more consolidated structure, would have been able to create some some content that would have been maybe not tour events, but something that was tour branded with bigger names right off the bat that could have kept the sport you know, immediately back in the spotlight in a way, because it is a great social distancing sport. It doesn't require the same kind of gymnastics that the NBA or the NHL would require. Did you have an interesting purview of the Wimbledon cancellation? Did you write to that? Did you? Yeah, I mean, I was told pretty early that they had insurance. Um, People knew that, um, and I think that was a – they'll tell you it wasn't the only factor, but it was a major factor, obviously, and it gave them a lot of latitude to be able to make those calls. It's a part of the cultural landscape there, so they don't take that lightly, but I always knew that was more of a possibility. And then I think the U.S. Open was, because you could tell from the U.S. Open conversations uh, early on that they really needed and wanted to get that event on. And Wimbledon had a little bit different perspective on it. And I felt like the, uh, the insurance policy that they had, which is you know, pandemic related and covered them uh, in the situation was going to give them a little more latitude. And that's what happened, right? They cashed in and they cashed in a big Sotheby's or whatever, whatever they cashed in a big, big 
pandemic insurance policy and just tabled the event. And yeah, they, which was which wasn't cheap, Craig. I mean, it was costing a couple million a year just to do that, and it was kind of a long shot policy. But if you're Wimbledon and you have good uh, good vision, <laughs> you can afford to do. And the other other event that I know that did that was uh, the Open Championship in golf. Oh, that's interesting. Industry conservative thing, yeah. And to their credit, I believe they paid everybody first round money. That was a great gesture. And I think that was something the players really appreciated, especially with the time that it happened. This had been going on for quite a while with the pandemic break and, and the hiatus. And it was a you know, classy, symbolic gesture. Wimbledon obviously didn't get all their money back um, from the policy. It kept them from taking a huge hit, but I'm sure they didn't. Uh, <laughs> they're not in the green this year for sure. And uh, think about all the lost opportunities in terms of culture and everything else that goes on. We all know what Wimbledon means, not just to the world of tennis, but to, but to Britain. And um, then to call it off is a big thing. As we move towards the towards that U.S. Open, Cincinnati U.S. Open moment, had you heard rumblings of this, you know, sort of the breakout organization or association that that Novak and others were uh, involved with, this uh, sort of coup d'état from the ATP? Yeah, I mean, you've been around the game a long time, so have I. These sorts of moves have been around for 20 years. I remember, uh, you know, Wayne Ferreira, I think you had on your show not long ago, um, was part of one of those moves, Tarango, and those guys as well. Uh, I know um, people like Roddick, Blake, were talking about it pretty seriously in terms of unionization of players. It's been on the, on the, on the burner for a long time and, and had gone to cold. And I talked to Pospisil, I think it, end of 2019. Mm. And they were preparing, he told me, to put a lot of pressure on the Aussie Open in 2020, you know, to give them a better percentage of prize money and give the players, most importantly, as Pospisil's point of view, a, a seat at the table in the Grand Slam prize money negotiations, which obviously was going to create some issues with the ATP because it's supposed to be the ATP's job. And he made it clear then that Novak was involved. He made it clear then that people like Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys on the women's side were also involved. So I was expecting it to be a big issue in Australia 2020. And as it turned out, because uh, Roger and Rafa decided not to back it, wanted to go, you know, with more of a direct conventional approach through the ATP and the player council and the board, that they just didn't feel confident with Novak pushing that thing to the front burner, didn't feel they had the big name support they needed. So they decided to wait. And then the world goes crazy. Tennis goes off the radar. And so I think they made a, a move and they felt they had to do it. Otherwise, they were going to lose any momentum that they did have at the U.S. Open. But the timing and the optics were not great. Can you clarify for my for our listeners the, I don't know, I guess maybe the X's and the O's of the situation? Can you explain what that scenario was? You mean in terms of the creation of it or in terms of the In terms of the creation of it, in terms of Chris Kermode getting, you know, shut down. I mean, it's all sort of, it's all sort of <laughs> our kissing cousins, right? I'm not sure this is going to help your ratings here too much, but, and it's a long involved topic, but I think, you know, basically in a big nutshell, the situation is the, the issue with the ATP and the fact that you have equal representation on the board of the tournaments basically, you know, pay and recruit the players to compete. Uh, and then you have the players themselves represented often by players who are people who are not active players anymore. And in some cases are TV executives or management company executives. So the fact that you have these two opposing at times and sometimes cooperative blocks 
in the same organization just creates a lot of stasis. And that's where it's been for a long time. And I think the players, that's been the frustrating point. And I think that's what they feel has led to a, a lack of evolution on prize money and lack of leverage with the Grand Slams and the other power brokers in the game. And you know what? They're right. It has. Um, it's no mystery. There are some benefits to that. Uh, I think you get a, you know, a better look at sort of the growth of the Masters 1000s. We used to call them the Super 9s. I think that's been pretty clear. It's been a real success story. And a lot of that has come from the fact that the players and the tournaments and those directors of those tournaments have worked together to create that, that sort of new brand out of nothing in some ways. But overall, big picture of the player power and, and the player's role in the sport, it's been tough. And I think they have hit below their, you know, hit below their weight in some ways. I have no doubt if all the players got together, at least 90% of the top players, and said, hey, we're going to do this our way. We're going to get the leverage we need and negotiate directly with the people who are writing the checks. They would get a better deal. You can just look at other sports and see how it's happened. But that has proven so elusive for a whole bunch of reasons. You get an 11 month a year sport. Players have to be focused on their own progress and, and their own games. You have a, a global sport where you have different blocks around the world. So all these different things have come into play, Craig, where you've got internal tensions within tennis, but it's exacerbated by the fact that you have you know, basically forces nullifying each other. So what's happened here, you know, Novak's approach with Pospisil and the new player organization is designed to try to break some of that log jam. But the problem is basically just created another big log. At a, at a real funky time too, right? Yeah, at yeah. a real that, funky that, time. I understand their thinking. I mean, if you wait much longer, um, economic pressures increase. The players aren't going to be able to necessarily stay unified, at least the ones who agree with this idea. And they had a lot of support on the council. You know, people like you know, John Isner backed it. Um, so you knew you had a, a good quorum there in terms of people that were going to put their, their spot on the council on the line as it proven to be true. A lot of them resigned. But um, it was tough because it did seem kind of like a money grab at a time when it should have been a very collective mindset you know, that was predominating. Is there something significant about the fact that Novak you know, wasn't able to persuade Roger and Rafa to, to kind of rock with him? Yes, I think it's I think it's telling, and I do feel like I think Novak is a fascinating, complex, journalistic subject in a lot of ways. So much good in him, I believe that in terms of his uh, wider view of the game and his own approach to um, kind of the rank and file of tennis. I mean, a lot of number ones in the history of the game would have had no interest in fighting that fight, particularly in his in his spot. I mean, he's right there to be like an, un he's almost like, you think he might go undefeated this year and he put a lot of heat on himself. I mean, I think the one thing that could elevate Novak to a different plane than Roger and Rafa would be a you know, calendar year Grand Slam. I just call it a Grand Slam because that's what it is. Yeah, a Grand Slam. That's what I call Rafa, it. Rafa and Roger are not going to do that. Yeah. And Novak has a legitimate chance to do it. And this would have been one of the years, obviously, the way it played out he wouldn't have been able to get the four because there was no Wimbledon. But other years, it has been the case where it's been an option, and it could be again next year. So if you could argue that Novak should be putting himself 100%, you know, body, mind, and soul into that quest because that could be the great elevating element in his career. And yet, he spends a lot of his time, you know, fighting these fights. You call them quixotic if you like, but um, some of them are not quixotic. And that is, you know, the fight for the – the players at the lower levels of the game to have a chance to make a reasonable living. 
the chance to have more unity among the player group. Those are, those are worthy, uh, worthy quests. Yeah, his aim is true. It just seems like sometimes, um, you know, hubris is a, a fascinating uh, <laughs> character flaw in history. <laughs> I, th- I think his, in- his intent is often true, yeah. but his aim, is, his aim is pretty faulty, unfortunately. Sorry, his intent is true and his aim is faulty. And you wrote to that at the U.S. Open. We're going to get to it. So we, we get to the U.S. Open. What were your impressions of, of that moment in time? Well, I mean... I personally feel like having covered it all, I spent a lot of my time this year as a journalist because obviously I write for the New York Times and the U.S. Opens in New York and it was the biggest sporting event in that area. You know, it's not a parochial paper by any means. It's a global paper, but that was a huge thing for us in terms of coverage. So we were on it and um, I feel pretty good about the way we covered it ultimately in terms of you know covering the ins and outs of it. But I feel like in some ways they didn't get quite the credit they deserved in my view, Craig. Um, I feel like they, uh, it was heroic, right? What they achieved um, heroics, too strong a war. They're too strong. Heroic is, heroic is you're in the, uh, emergency room night after night and yeah, sorry. people on life or yeah. death, but, you know, very worthy effort and uh, against the odds effort. And, um, a lot of late nights, a lot of negotiations, a lot of back and forth with everybody and everything. And I think just to have that thing come off the way it did was a real achievement. And I'm not sure that, five, six years down the track, we're going to remember it that way. They'll, they'll know what happened and good for them, but it was a hell of an effort. And the players came to play, man. That tennis was good. Yeah. I mean, there was, I think, something missing. How could there not be? It's New York. It's, you know, chattering in the stands. as glasses clinking in the luxury boxes and not players with their feet up in their own little private box. But, hey, it was just what was possible, what could be done, and there was a fair bit of creative thinking that went into it and um, a lot of uh, human ingenuity in play. And I think, does it deserve an asterisk? I don't think so, because looking at the whole history of tennis, there's so many tournaments that do deserve that asterisk. I think we have to just go with the flow of history and look at what goes on and what goes off. And you wrote a poignant article about that. You said there's no asterisk. There shouldn't be an asterisk here. Just if you're, you're going to give one out to this one, you better have a big box of them to give out a whole bunch of other ones for all the Australian Opens and French Opens past. And, sure. And, and obviously the Wimbledon boycott year and that uh, Kodish one. So I think it's, it's, a, big, it's a big beast. And I, I think the U.S. Open deserves more credit than they have received for being able to pull it off. But it was diminished, Craig, and it was definitely diminished. And I think the women's tournament, you're missing a quarter of the top 100. And uh, no Barty, uh, no Halep. Those are big losses. And yet, down the stretch, the last weekend of women's tennis was pretty fine, pretty good. And, you know, one of the things I thought was kind of nice was to see three moms playing rough and ready tennis. Uh, Parankova, Vika, and Serena all came to Playboy. Yeah, they did. And that, those are all great stories. And I think, you know, maybe uh, people like uh, Serena, Vika, and Satana who've had to adapt and juggle many things in their lives. Maybe this sort of situation that we've all been in this year of having to adapt and manage different uh, agendas. Maybe it's not a coincidence that they all made it that far at the U.S. Open. What do you say about Naomi Osaka? Hey, you know, you can just tell, looking at the wider media world and media landscape around everywhere at the end of the year, that what she did at New York left a real imprint. For me, she's already a Hall of Famer, obviously, with – you know, three Grand Slam titles. This one was 
definitely start to finish the trickiest one. She was nursing an injury, first of all, which the people will forget. But she also decided, you know, through her own personal experiences in the last uh, year or two to really kind of carry that standard. You could argue that it's not as radical a move as it would have been in the times of Navratilova or certainly not Carlos and Smith on the podium at the Olympics. Sure. You could argue that it was almost more of a, a counterintuitive or counterculture play to go against that, that wave at this time. But she still had to walk out there and do it, and she made it a focus, and she brought a lot of light to the issue. And the sport, you know, made the right choice by responding to her call, uh, not her call, responding to her action in the Cincinnati warm-up event, the Cincinnati and New York event. So, yeah, I think what she pulled off was, uh, was rare in sports and that she was able to carry that standard and then still perform at a high level. And it, it felt to me like the, the social stance and, and what she was doing helped focus her because she, she really had not played good tennis for some time, man. And to win seven matches like that, she looked like she really found her, you know, that world-class form. Yeah, people forget, too. If you go back to Australia, we talked about before, you know, one of the very worst matches and most sort of yeah. – Disappointing matches I've seen her play was a loss to Coco Goff in Australia. She was psyched she, out. She was she could barely put a ball on the court at times. I mean, Coco, to her credit, knows how to compete and I think has a she can keep everything in perspective and not face too much pressure, has a really bright future. But that was not a match in my view that Coco won as much as Naomi just imploded. So to be in that space, and she already had her new coach Wim Facet on board at that time. So he could he could have had an impact already by then in a positive way and making some of the changes that he wanted to make because they did have the off season, but um, she was in a bad place. So to get from there through the whole pandemic and to be able to play the kind of quality tennis she did for that, that three weeks in, in New York was an impressive turnabout. I talked to Wim after, but before the Indian Wells, I canceled and, and he, he spoke to the fact that, you know, she was, she was nervous playing Coco Goff again. And, and, uh, you're right. I think that, you know, Wim Facet did a world-class job getting his player ready to, to go win a major. Yeah, and I think Naomi, you know, when she won her first U.S. Open, the big upgrade in her game, she's always had that amazing ball-striking ability, loved the serve and technique, but really it was her fitness and her footwork that improved a great deal mm. in that sort of 12-month period leading into that, that first uh, slam title. And it's got to be. If you're going to play under pressure, you got to have everything locked in. And she definitely got much quicker, much fitter, much more explosive, paid off in every shot. And I think what women did, you could see it in New York again, was that she was able to really, that fine footwork to create her platform to be able to let her shots explode off the racket was really in a good place and upgraded that even more. So I think that's the key for her. She has to really be rock solid with her movement. And Vika got tight, right? <laughs> Vika was right there. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no doubt. Now, you wrote significantly about Hawkeye Live. I haven't talked about it. I liked it. What, uh, what, can, you tell, uh, what can you tell us about it? And what well, you talked about in your article, how if it wasn't for Ralph Lauren, Novak may have not had that problem. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, it's <laughs> that, the choice of keeping Hawkeye you know, Live off the two main show course at the U.S. Open was due to a bunch of factors from what I've been told. But one of the factors was that, you know, Ralph Lauren was a sponsor and they've got their clothing on the line umpires and, and that's part of the contract and they wanted to keep it that way. 
I'm not sure that was the decisive factor, but it was certainly a factor. And if you didn't have a, a line umpire in place and Novak wheels around and whacks the ball at the back, uh, the back wall of the, of the center court, there's no line umpire to hit. So in no way am I excusing what Novak did. In no way am I making the line umpire no. at fault for that. But it's, 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 a, it's an interesting twist. You wrote a very sharp article where you, you were able to kind of connect the dots on Novak getting, I guess it's DQ'd. Right, you get disqualified. Disqualified, DQ'd. Right, yeah. He got DQ'd, but you you basically gave the the reader a history lesson in the Adria Tour fiasco, the the new association, like you said, that he's extended himself and his execution or his aim has been faulty. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, in the in the history of tennis, if you put Novak in a continuum. I'm not so sure he deserves quite the role that he's playing, but viewed in this era, when you got guys like you know Federer and Nadal who really have kept a pretty clean sheet, you know, in a lot of ways, and have managed to be remarkable under that kind of microscope and and navigate things. I mean, you can argue that Novak is laying it out there in a way those guys are not um, day to day and taking on issues that he feels passionate about and um, doing it in his own way. But I do think he has a tendency to shoot himself in the sneaker. I really do. And um, whether that's that's due to you know lack of diplomacy on his part, a lack of big picture planning, wanting to just speak from the cuff, there's part of that. Uh, his own his own character. I think he comes from a much more conflicted and complex place than Federer Nadal do because of his background in Serbia growing up. He told me a story in a big interview we did at the end of 2019 in Monte Carlo about his dad slapping like a single Deutschmark bill on the table of his family's apartment in Belgrade, Serbia, when he was a boy and saying, hey, this is it. This is all we got right here in front of us. I think it's something like, you know, around 100, 100 US dollars. It's what we have in the bank. This is our family situation. We've all got to improvise and do what we can. And that was the deal. And Novak remembers that very clearly, obviously. And I think those sort of experiences are very formative and have created a lot of that drive in him. There's also a, a lot of tension in him. And so his attempts to kind of get holistic and new age about it and talk about the healing properties of water and different things like that, you can dislike them and think it's too touchy-feely for you. And I personally don't subscribe to a lot of what he says, but you can understand the kind of things he's fighting within himself. Hawkeye on clay, you, you wrote to that. What were your findings? Is, are we going to, is that, is that the future? You know, back to the other topic about Hawkeye, having watched Hawkeye live in place at the U S open and other hard courts, I frankly, after a while, you don't even notice. I know it's so good. Think, By the way, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, I know there are some people who will say that there are mistakes and there have been some of they, they charted a few at the U S open. A lot of them are down to human error. Believe it or not, they were not machine error. Those people kind of putting in the wrong service box when they were looking at the, the serves to come so that the machine was misreading it because of human error. And of course, you know, nothing's perfect, but at least it gives you a consistent sort of approach. What you lose, in my view, is the challenge system, which I've kind of liked. The old Arlen Cantarian, former NFL executive, USTA chief executive who uh, put that in place to kind of create that suspense and entertainment value. That's a loss. But in terms of continuity, speed of play, um, as long as you get a chair umpire up there to give a human element and be able to have some sort of interface, I think the way things are playing out, that will become 
the rule on the tour. And I think the, the costs, obviously, of having no line umpires will be help mitigate some of the cost of the systems. Yeah, listen, man. The, the, I mean, guys, the girls are banging 120 serves. The guys are banging 140 serves. They're hitting 100-mile-an-hour ground strokes. You can't see the ball hit the line. It just doesn't – it's not working. But I'm not sure I want to see a situation where it's just the two players out there on the court with nobody in a chair, nobody mm-hmm. around them. I, I, I mean, I remember Rafa talking about that very recently, and I – I agree with them on that. I'm not sure I want to see uh, just the players mano a mano. I want to see one, you know, one other human out there to kind of be part of the uh, part of the theater and the spectacle. Hey, listen, I'm a I, I miss fingers Fortescue, right? I I miss the <laughs> I miss the let the, the let court judges, but I just when I was watching it in Cincinnati and and I just didn't miss it. So yeah, I agree. It's, you, we adapt so fast, and I think people when they watch it, their eyes adapted. Yeah, and, and on clay, you know, I think the same thing would happen. Um, do you have to have it on clay? I don't think you have to, but I, and I do think the system they have in place has its charms, but if the rest of the sport is using that system, you know, I think, and you can make it more accurate and better for the players, you know, the players seem to want it. Why not? I watched a huge amount of, uh, of Roland Garros. And one of my great takeaways was just how much I loved watching uh, Stefano Sitsipas play on clay. I mean, it's like just a thing of beauty. Uh, what were your, what are your impressions of him, and what were your impressions of the tournament? Love to watch him play. Love his game. I mean, I'm a, I was a Division three college player, and um, you know, a mediocre junior player, and I love the one-handed backhand. I always have, and I love the way he hits it, the way he plays it. Um, like his overall athleticism, he's got an all-court mentality, all-court game. And I can tell he's a guy who's driven to have, uh, driven to improve. You can have you spoken that. to him? Do you know him? Have you spoken to I him? Haven't, I haven't done a long one-on-one with him at all. I just interviewed him, you know, briefly, a few, a few short one-on-ones. That's about it. But I do, I, the guy's got that uh, ineffable quality. He's got star quality. He's, he's got, got a big star quality. I'm not sure he's quite as coherent in all the philosophy at this stage in his life, but he's <laughs> yeah. young still. That yeah. he's complex and he's got a ways to go. I think not everything scans. Yeah. And I've watched a couple of his uh, his pandemic podcasts where I was sort of like, wow, you know, maybe this is better to have a little pause button on some of this stuff. Is that right? But, but that's the generation, you know. The generation's a bit different. They're laying it out there in a way that other generations have not. And he's he's true to that. And he's good. that guy has got a lot of upside for, for tennis. And, and I think that we'll see a lot from him if he stays healthy. Everyone's been, you know, talking about Sviantek and her her incredible win, but people forget uh, Sophia Kennedy got to the final. Like she had some year in terms of, you know, winning one and finaling one. What were your impressions of the women's draw at the French? I mean, I've rarely seen anything like what Iga did. I mean, it was hard to take your eyes off of her. I thought Halep was going to win based on the way she worked her way into it, skipping the U.S. Open, coming in fresh you know, playing well in the clay quarter events leading in. I was really impressed by the way Simona started the year. I thought she was playing great. You know, Muguruza knocked her out in a great match in Australia, but she was playing big-time ball. I think she and Cahill were, had her game in a great place, and she weathered the pandemic pretty well. So that, that's, that result to me was a big shock, you know, seeing how Iga took care of her that easily, and, and Simona kind of disappeared, as she's done in the past in some big matches, but not for a while. So that, to me, my memory of women's tournament is going to be you know, Sviantek just proving impervious to pain moment and all the rest. 
And I think that's the one thing I kind of left me hungry was that I would like to have seen her under duress at least once. Yeah, she was really I, good. I, she didn't I, drop I, a set, I, right? Breaker. I'd like to have seen her have to fight through a third set and suddenly realize, wow, you know, this isn't all going my way. There's a little bit of that in the first set against Kennan at the end of that first set when Sophia applied the pressure, but not very much. And ultimately, that'll be the test of Iga, how she handles that stardom, because she'll be a huge star in Poland, and she already is, and, and in Europe, and how she manages that approach, and how she's going to manage the inevitable attempts to counteract her game. And was it just a great week of tennis? For sure. She's too good for it to be just one week, but, or two weeks, but and 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 Podoroska came through. Did you write about her? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I watched her game. I mean, I, again, you watch the technique, the way she moves, the use of the forehand. I mean, it's a, it's a big time kind of Kuznetsova type of type of game to me. Very athletic. I don't think she's a flash in the pan either. Is she a future Grand Slam champion? I don't. I'm not sure about that, based on some of the, the strength of shot. But on clay, the way she moves and her ability to generate, you know, pace off of different heights of the forehand. You know, very impressive. What was your what were you thinking when Rafa just absolutely pistol with Novak in that final? Well, I'm just thinking all along. I mean, no Novak obviously had his issues physically in the semi. Um, and I think that was a made me wonder whether he'd be able to be hundred percent for the final, but I don't think anybody saw that coming. And the doll, I think, just peaked at just the right moment. And I think the fact that he didn't play him in super cold and clammy conditions. Helped some, but it, I think Rafa would have beaten, you know, Novak in a snowstorm that day. I think he was just fired up, seen the ball beautifully, had a great game plan, and, and executed it really well. And you were not there. No, I didn't go. First, first French Open I've missed in a long, long time. I've been going. I think I've only missed one other one in 30 years. But I covered it all. We covered it all from remotely because that was the way the access was to the players and everything else. Last two questions for this year in review. Um, you wrote about uh, a new, the new Fed Cup uh, being renamed, and you really wrote a great story, giving a very significant history lesson, which I enjoyed. Long time coming to change that to the Billie Jean King uh, Cup. Yeah, it has been. I, it was it was discussed, and not Billie Jean King, but they talked about naming it for a, a player when they decided to call it the Federation Cup back when it was created. The decision was made to to go with the the name of the uh, people who were funding it and backing it was the International Tennis Federation. Just a dud of a name, frankly. You can have things in, in soccer that have similar names, but in tennis, I don't think it really works. And so I think all along it's had an identity issue. And really, it's in recent years, it's had better support from the top players yeah. than the Women's Cup has. So it should be a bigger event than it is. I don't think changing the name is going to have a massive impact, but I do think that the players around the world and this is interesting. I would have thought Billie Jean King would be more of an American phenomenon in terms of how she reaches people and young women's players. But the more I talk to players from Europe and other parts of the world, you realize that you know, King really resonates across borders. So I think it was a great call. There's a lot of King now. I mean, King is obviously the world team tennis a trophy's name for her as well. And um, she's a big factor in it's not going to be her only competition that she's committed to, but I think it's uh, it was the right call and, and, and overdue, and I think it can help the profile. And last but not least, the trials and tribulations of uh, Sasha Zverev. Yeah. You know, I've been on leave. I haven't covered that the ins and outs of that as much as some of my colleagues have. But, uh, yeah, I mean, going from Zverev in Australia, pledging all his prize money, 
to bushfire relief if he were to win. And that's, that's, a, that's quite a position to be in in a positive sense and getting a lot of love for that to uh, what he's been through in the last, uh, and what he's put himself through, frankly, in the last couple of months. It's almost like he wrecked, he wrecked a year and a half in a, or he had a year and a half wrecked, however you want to look at it, with a major lawsuit, right? A big agent dispute. He dropped Patricio Ape, and, and I guess he, he put an Instagram post up that that got resolved a day or two ago. But then, the, the, obviously, the, you wrote to the, to the allegations of domestic abuse, I believe. What can you tell us? I actually, I actually haven't oh, you didn't it. write to I, it. I was, I was on leave when that happened, but... Um... You know, when I'm talking about the things that he's done to himself, I think the issue with, with Patricio and, and Ace and then these allegations from Sharapova, these are things that he's obviously created these issues with his behavior and his choices. Um, you don't want to condemn anybody without proof. And obviously, I think it'd be a really more compelling if, if she would file charges in the situation and you find out what really happens in a, in a court of law. And because these are these are serious allegations. This is this is real physical abuse. And in this era, there's. You know, you really have no excuse for not following through on these in some way or another. I'm not sure what her reasons are for not doing that. I still think the ATP should investigate. Look at the NFL and other professional sports leagues have in place their own independent investigations to be able to, they're not obviously criminal court of law, but about behavior. And there are stipulations in the ATP rule book about conduct unbecoming to the game and uh, unsportsmanlike conduct and things like that. That certainly would apply in this case if the allegations are true. And there's a level of detail in the allegations that is very disquieting. I mean, it's very disquieting. And, and for our listeners, uh, Ben Rothenberg, Chris's colleague, or uh, I guess colleague at the New York yeah, Times. Ben writes for us. He's a freelancer and has done yeah. a great job for many years. But Ben, ben wrote an investigative report that Racket Magazine published about these allegations, and he interviewed, he went to – this woman, Olga Sharapova's home, I highly recommend people uh, read it. Yeah, also the, the German press also has done stuff with, with her as well. So she's not just not just one culture she's talked to. She's talked to a couple different ones. But the level of detail is is, uh, is troubling to say the Yeah, least. it is. Is there a moral of the story for tennis in 2020? Is there a thesis statement? Is there a, a grandiose uh, thought about what we've what we just went through? It's a great sport, Craig. We both know that. Um, I feel like it's in one way encouraging and that tennis has been able to adapt as it has so often through the years um, to social change, to cultural upheaval, you know, be it wars, be it pandemics, it finds a way to get through. But, you know, partly I think the lesson is, uh, you know, unity would really be helpful in moments of crisis. And unfortunately, the sport has many strengths, but it's lack of unity and the amount of time it takes to get everybody in the room to agree on what that needs to be done and they make it happen and to fight through all the different factions and, and the alphabet soup and, and serve the damn bowl of soup on the table. It is, it takes too long and it's, it's a lot of wasted energy. And it is, this is not global soccer we're talking about. This is tennis. It's a global sport with nowhere near that same amplitude and natural audience it needs to fight for its place. And in my view, the more genuine unity that, that it has, um, the better. I think that was proven again in this pandemic. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where you talk about your career. You live where I was born, 
and you were born where I basically spent my entire, I went to every year of school in Rhode Island. You were born in Newport. I was, and I wasn't there for long. My dad was a career naval officer, so I was, he was there, you know, as part of his, his training in, in Newport, and so that's, that's where I got born, yeah. Now, your, your father was a rear admiral. He was a heavy dude, it seems like, and would, would it be fair to say that he was at the Naval War College? Is, are you a product yeah. of... I grew up with that. I mean, I left, we left Newport when I was, you know, a very small child, and he, we were moved all over the country for his job. Obviously, you're transferred often when you're a naval officer. But my family goes back three generations, Craig. My great-grandfather was a Navy captain, submariner in the, in the teens and the 20s. And my grandfather was also an admiral. He was the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, um, Bernard Clary, and was a, uh, I think it's genuinely appropriate. He was a World War II war hero, submarine commander. Head of the head of the Pacific Fleet. Correct. Woo! Yeah, he was sink pack. And my father was also a career naval officer and a, and a rear admiral. So now I'm a humble sports writer. So the, but you uh, but so you grew up in a military family. How'd you know you were gonna become a writer? How how did that how what's what's the story behind your uh finding your career? Well, I grew up in a military family, obviously, on, on my father's side at least. But I can tell you my dad never in any way pressured me to to become a part of the military. Obviously the draft was done by the time I came along and finished my college years. So it wasn't it wasn't an obligation. And I just never I was always interested in it. And I read lots of books about it and watched lots of movies and I loved hearing my grandfather's and my father's stories when they would share about what they'd been through. But I was never drawn to it myself. And I always knew from a pretty early age that the two things I was most passionate about were writing and sports. It was always the case. I think for me, I moved around so much as a kid. I mean, 10, 11 moves before I finished high school. Uh, often having to be the new kid on the block and approaching for me, sports were my way of integrating, tennis in particular. And I, we lived on the East Coast for a number of years and went to Hawaii. And I went to school out of Punahou and played junior tennis out there and then back to California. For, for me, that was always my my passport to get into the new school, new community and so I think that was always drawn to that. And I grew up, you know, probably like you, in a lot of ways I consider it one of the golden eras of sports writing. There have been a lot of them, but this probably was the last and most recent one was Sports Illustrated when it was in its peak with all its great writers, a lot of them, a lot of whom covered tennis. And I, you know, I spent a lot of my time at the public library going through the stacks of Sports Illustrated and all the sports books and reading it. And from a very early age was just fascinated by the whole global nature of it. Learned about geography through watching the Olympics and, and from watching tennis. And my mom was a player, you know, a good club player. And we often, we got up and listened to Bud Collins and the gang, you know, do the broadcasts. And I graduated from high school, what's uh, 82. So I was part of the tennis boom. Was Bud a uh, significant person for you? You know, Bud was significant for all of us in, on many levels. Um, in my generation, especially because we grew up, as part of the tennis boom and that was probably you know the most prominent voice of that as a journalist and a commentator for sure and um you go out to your first big tennis tournament and bud collins is there you know that's a defining moment for a, a young reporter how is this guy who's larger than life to you and and you've been reading him and watching him and listening to him how's he gonna respond to you the greenhorn showing up and i can tell you and i wouldn't be the only one to say this 
Bud, universally, is one of the most generous people I've ever come across as an established star journalist who uh, never didn't have time for his younger colleagues, however unimportant they were, and always was there for whatever question you had. And I think a lot of that had to do with the kind of person that he was, but also his genuine abiding love for the sport. And anybody Loved who was interested it. in tennis, he respected that interest, respected that passion, and he wanted to uh, throw some kindling on the fire. And so he did that consistently. How did you get your break? How did your career happen? Yeah, it's a series of breaks. I mean, I think part of it is because you got to, you got you to lay the groundwork. You got to love sports. You got to know and love what you're writing about, but not love it too much. Obviously as a journalist, you got to be objective about it and you got can't be afraid to criticize it, but, you, but I think it helps to have played the game in terms of tennis. But for me, in terms of my break, it's a crazy story because I basically um, was traveling uh, after I finished college, I graduated hadn't really traveled overseas very much. I traveled within our country a great deal. And you you graduated from Williams College. Yeah. And what number did you play at college? You were college, you played D3 <laughs> tennis. Yeah, I played uh I played number four, I think, my junior year, and I played number one my senior year. And I was a much better number four than I was a number one. Yeah. And did you were were you a journalism major? I was not. We didn't at Williams doesn't have those kind of majors, doesn't have business type majors. It's got you know liberal arts, humanities. I was an English and history double major, and took a lot of art history as well, which is one, one thing I really fell in love with there. We had a great faculty of art historians at Williams, so I had had very little exposure to that. So that was one of the great joys of going to college there. And I played, I played three sports for, for, you know, for a year. I played soccer, volleyball in the winter, which was a club sport, and then tennis. And then I played uh, volleyball and tennis the last three years I was there. So I, I really enjoyed that opportunity to be able to mix the sports and and the humanities in some ways have been doing it ever since. But yeah, the, but the break was funny. I'll just tell it quickly, Craig. I was traveling um, overseas for about nine, 10 months, went through uh, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, got a chance to travel to China with a backpack when they first opened it up to independent tra travel. This is back in 1987. And I came back weighing about 140 pounds, hadn't had three square <laughs> meals a day in a long time, but I was incredibly inspired and happy after this amazing year of traveling. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had worked as an intern at the local paper in San Diego, the San Diego Union at the time. And I'm taking fish counts over the phone about how many albacore tuna had been caught the previous night and, and all kinds of, uh, you know, copying duty and minor work. So I come back and I was home in San Diego at my parents' place, kind of recovering from this mind-blowing journey. And uh, I get a call from the sports editor in San Diego, a guy named Bob Wright, and he goes, so uh, we're looking to try to find Chris. This is pre-internet. You can't write an email to anybody. Um, would you uh, know where he is? To my parents, they go, well, he happens to have just gotten back from this trip. And so I get on the phone and he goes, well, we have a summer internship program here. And our intern just backed out. A guy named Jeremy Shap. Huh. And I, uh, he said, would you be interested in coming and talking to us about it? I said, well, I haven't written anything about sports in a while. I've been on the road. He says, well, what have you written? I said, well, I kept a journal from my travels. Um, and he said, well, bring that in. So I go in, I lay this stack of journal entries on his desk. We talk Come on. and he reads through them and I get a call back a couple of days later. And he says, Chris, we want to offer you the internship. And it was a paid internship too, Craig. It wasn't like you coming in and just doing it for nothing. It was a legit sort of thing. Newspapers could do that in those days. And so I, you know, I had another job offer 
in a whole different sector in Silicon Valley through a, a connection I had. So I had to choose Silicon Valley or sports writing. 30 years later, I might look kind of dumb for the choice I made, but at the time it was an easy choice. <laughs> and how did you just start writing about tennis? How did tennis become the majority of your work? Well, I think partly it's just because that was the connection that I felt most deeply, probably because of those childhood experiences. But I, when I got a chance as an intern early in my career and as a you know, uh, kind of early stage journalist in San Diego, which was a good tennis community, I got a chance to write about it quite a lot. And I just felt a real connection with the sport from the start. I thought when I wrote about it, I could feel it. I could sense it in my bones when I was watching a, a match, what was going on, what was happening in the players' heads, the shots they were making, what their decisions they were having to make. I knew which shots were hard, which shots were easy. And I think that really helped. But I just felt this connection. And I really, uh, as an athlete at a lower level myself, I could relate to these people. I could relate to a lot of athletes, but really to tennis players. And my boss in San Diego, I'm not sure if you ever met Barry Lorge. Barry Lorge was the Washington Post tennis writer. And he covered tennis in the, uh, in the 70s and the 80s. Barry Lorge. Barry Lorge was a very good friend of Bud Collins as well. Mm. And knew Neil Ander at the New York Times, who was a tennis writer there and later the sports editor. Yeah. And so Barry was the sports editor in San Diego. And so he was an obvious mentor for me having arrived as a, as an intern and then as a uh, early stage writer. And, and basically Barry gave me my first big break, which was I'd covered some tournaments locally in San Diego, San Diego tennis and racket club. People like Stephanie Rahe were playing. I remember meeting Ted Tinling there working for the WTA at the time of the Virginia Slims. And Barry went to Wimbledon every year. That's one of his uh, plum assignments of the year as a sports editor. And in 1990, he couldn't go. And for whatever reason, you know, Barry's past now, I'm eternally grateful. He offered me the chance to go to Wimbledon in 1990. So wow. kind of going from covering your local San Diego tournament to going to cover the uh, cover Wimbledon. So I got to go. And after that, I knew, I mean, I didn't know where it was going to lead, but I knew, my goodness, this was the place to be. And I loved every minute of it. 1990. Fantastic, man. Yeah. Martina's last one. And uh, Edberg and, and Becker. And how did you get good? Like, how were you able, like, <laughs> how, how did you get good? How did you learn how to do it? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. It's true. I think of it and how great I got to be at it. I mean, there are days when it's not great at all. And there are days when you say, oh, that wasn't all bad, what I just wrote or what I just did. I think it's, it's reps. It's passion. I can literally watch tennis still after 30 plus years and, I get excited about seeing a new player or something, a shot that I haven't seen hit that way before or how these guys are going to match up. Uh, I still get that you know, little flutter in the stomach as an outsider watching the sport. So I think that's key because tennis can grind you down into tiny little pieces because it's a very repetitive sport. The uh, storylines evolve sometimes slowly. They don't change too quickly. So I think if you don't have that real understanding and passion for the sport, uh, it's hard to follow it for so long effectively for sure also you have to have the sense that you know the devil's in the details right like i felt i feel like the way you like sort of rock your articles is you you have super attention to background to give the the situation gravitas i think i think you have to know helps to know the history of the sport you're writing about whatever it is yeah whether whether it's snowboarding at the olympics or whether it's you know tennis 
2020, it always helps to have that perspective. You don't want to have that become, unless it's of historical peace, you don't want to have that overwhelm the present. But I think it's very helpful to be able to bring in those comparisons to the past and look at a player in the present and say, hey, that kind of reminds me of uh, uh, the way that uh, Yvonne Lendl used to do it or the way that uh, uh, Borg used to move around the court. I think those are things that, that bring it alive in a way by having those connections across the past. And I think also having an eye, and I'm not sure you can learn this always. I think there's something innate about it. Kind of an eye for the telling detail that brings a story to life through an anecdote or through an image. And those are things that you learn to see those after a while. When you're watching a tennis match, you can sit there and go, okay, what just happened? That's going to be the focus of my story. And I know it now. The match isn't over, but I can already tell you. And that happens to people like me who've been doing it a long time. That happens a lot. And I, if I have, for young journalists, I try to, try to hone that instinct of looking at what you're seeing in front of you analytically and be able to, to break it down and say, okay, that moment there, that look of that player, that sort of uh, trend developing, you need to be able to break this living, moving thing down into uh, digestible narrative parts. So the draw comes out at, you can pick the major, it doesn't matter. How, who decides who's writing what? Who decides how many words you have? Who decides, how, do you, how does it work? Well, you know, for me, it's been different through the years. I mean, when I worked at the International Herald Tribune, it was a pretty small operation who decided it. Sometimes I would just decide myself what I was going to write for the day, and that was it. And that would be the one story we would publish. I'd covered the Australian Open for many, many years by myself and uh, took years off my life doing it because it's pretty much round the clock. Saw a lot of sunrises in Melbourne. Huh. But in recent years, you know, the New York Times has committed more and more resources to tennis. They feel it's a great fit for their readership. Um, it's got a, a global feel to it uh, that they really uh, feel is a good fit. So we committed a lot of a lot of people to it, and we've had some excellent tennis editors. A woman named Nyla Jean Myers, who's now in Minneapolis, and then our current ones. Uh, he's Oscar Garcia, got a great eye for news, very good under pressure editor. Basically, there's a lot of meeting that goes on before every slam. We get together and talk about strategy, where the storylines are, what we want to focus on, knowing full well that. Things are going to develop along the way that are going to outstrip some of that. We try to hit at least you know a few of those themes we talk about, and then each day before day's play, we sit down and talk about you know what am I going to focus on? Is it going to be you know Coco's match or Serena's match or whatever it is, or am I going to break out and do a story on drop shots or electronic line calling on clay? And you try to hit everything we can at the time with as much quality and depth as we can. Don't want to write three or four stories a day as a person. You want to try to focus on writing one and do it well, sometimes take an extra day and do it over two in a slam. But that slam rhythm is you know, pretty constant. You need to have that churn. I think it's creative churn and it helps. Now, do you guys ever get into like a, like a vicious fight where you argue about who wants what story? <laughs> say, oh, you, you, got, you had Novak last week, I had Novak this week or whatever it may be? And that hasn't really happened. And I okay. certainly there's potential for that. And I know I know it could happen, but I think a lot of it comes down to the editors knowing that journalists have got some great quality, but they also have some prima donna quality. So you gotta kinda manage that ahead of the curve. And so ultimately it's the editor's call and most of that stuff gets diffused before it blows up. But yeah, you're right. That, that could happen. Now, how do you write? Do you shut your phone off? Do you turn off the TV? When you're making notes, are you charting the match or are you, what, how do you, how do you, what's your process? Well, charting the match depends how much faith I have in the, in the stats. 
and unforced error counts and things like that. Unfortunately, back in the early days, uh, I would do a lot of detailed charting. And then at the end of the match, I'd have three or four hours after the interviews to sit down and write that piece for print, especially when you're covering a, for a U.S. paper uh, on, dead, on deadlines from Europe, you had a lot of time. You could sort of see the whole match, think it through, do your interviews, and then sit down and do it. Those days are long gone now. There's a lot of immediacy to it. You have to be able to have a little bit of social media presence as you cover a match, I think, to be effective. You have to be able to have a story ready to roll. It's going to go up quickly as soon as the story, as the match is over, at least a big match or a big upset. People in this era want to read it now, preferably before now if they can. And you can just see the traffic on the web. You know, it spikes early and diminishes. So you need to have a much, much less of the lag than you used to have. You need to have your quality piece with detail and real perspective up within a couple of hours. So it's changed the whole process of watching a match. And I think it really is helpful to have seen a lot of tennis in the old school way to have digested matches that way to be able to do a better job with this faster churn now. Do you leave your uh, desk or cubby or whatever? Are you just buzzing from press conference to desk or you try to put yourself out of the matches? It totally depends, but I, I would say I always, always want to be out there live on court as much as I can. And you know this from being there yourself. Nothing replicates that. Nothing replicates Not, that. H, HD, 3D, Super HD, Super 3D, nothing beats seeing it live, the spins, the movement, the spatial uh, sort of setup out there with the players and how fast they're moving, what they're doing. What you miss a little bit are the facial expressions and the mutterings. You obviously can't see that from row 10 or row 500 of the stands. But just for me, as somebody who grew up playing and watching tennis in stadiums, I didn't play in stadiums, but on courts that were uh, with an audience, I really feel like you can't replicate that. And I feel like I have a hard time really feeling the match unless I see it live. So I always try to see at least a, a good portion of it out there if I can. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. <laughs> I say it and you just say what comes into your mind. Okay, you ready? I am ready. The best tournament to work? Wimbledon. Why? We've heard that before. Well, it's because uh, I wouldn't have said that back in the day, even though 1990 was a great experience. But for a long time, it was uh, not very user-friendly for the media. Tough uh, to work around for the bureaucracy administration. They've done a great job of changing that chip. And the work, working setup for us is terrific there with the uh, – we're on my, I'm on ground level. Walk out to a center court in a flash. Can get to the outside courts in a hurry. We got some overviews allow us to see a bunch of outside courts at the same time. And then I just love the history of the game, and that's where the history is the richest. So there's nothing like that. The best tournament, in your opinion, as a for a fan experience, Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Wimbledon, because I think that's the one people have in their mind's eye. And I've rarely seen anybody who's gone who hasn't found it really, really cool just to be there in person, experience it. It's gotten too crowded on the outside now. If you don't have a show court ticket, it can be hard to get a really great view. But when they walk down the staircase, that backside, and they see those courts laid out like they were in the 1920s and 30s and get the panorama of Wimbledon and feel that, at least for the first year, that's where I tell people they got to they gotta make it there. If you're going to go every year, 
then I'd say Indian Wells, because I feel like that allows you to see all those great players in an environment where you had the space in the room and the sight lines to be able to really enjoy it. And it really is all about the tennis there in a lot of ways, Not a lot of distractions and it's, and it's a good community of, uh, of fans. I like to recommend Rome as an aside. I think Rome is something <laughs> special. The best tournament that you understand to be the best for the players, the play, which is the one the players love the most. It's gotta be Indian Wells, right? Yeah, I think I think it's Indian Wells because of the fact that you know the uh, the whole vibe and when it comes in the in the calendar is very good. I, I would I would argue probably more players will probably tell you that they love Australia than any other. That might be a little bit trickier right now, obviously because of the pandemic. And yeah, of course. Uh, this is a this is a pre-pandemic uh, question. <laughs> Tyranny of distance, the Aussie term does apply. I think a lot of people would tell you that, and I think I would probably have to agree because I think Indian Wells is great but you don't really have a, a city vibe to tap into. And what makes Melbourne so terrific is that the entire city, and in some ways, a lot of the country really lives that tournament fully. The players are, tennis is front and center. You head from the courts, you're in a, in a really, really good restaurant in Melbourne in a flash. If you're a player, you can, uh, the conditions, despite the brutality of the heat, which has been mitigated somewhat by the roofs, um, are really good for the players. And I think there's also that excitement of, it's the first part of the year. Anything's possible. Maybe I just actually might beat Novak this year, even though you're not going to do it. At least you think you can, right? Your favorite book. Oh, wow. What a great question for this week, huh? Favorite tennis book or favorite book? Hey, this is 10 balls. I'm going to go, I'm gonna go you, tennis book because this is about tennis. And Gordon Forbes just passed away. And a handful of summers. I can't quote you chapter and verse, but I certainly know from the experience of reading that, um, that to me – to find an era I've always been curious about and I'll never experience, you know, the, uh, the pre-open era of tennis and Gordon Forbes told it in a very, you know, whimsical and, and deep way, both at the same time. And he just passed this week. And so my condolences to Gavin and his family. For our listeners, Gordon Forbes was a South African player who became a significant sports writer. He wrote the book that Chris just uh, re reference that many think is one of the great is really one of the great tennis books. Uh, his son Gavin Forbes, a longtime uh, heavy hitter agent, uh, I think he actually runs tennis for IMG, and he passed this week. Hey Craig, real quick, one last thing. I got to put. I got to give a, a terrible splendor of some props to. Terrible splendor about um, about uh, Budge and uh, Von Crown and that era in, in men's tennis and the matches in Davis Cup and Wimbledon is a tremendous book. Not just a tennis book, but a tremendous book. So I hope, hopefully, hopefully your listeners have read it or will read that. Your favorite book that's non-tennis, man. You got to tell us. Favorite book is non-tennis. I don't think I have a favorite. I've, I've read so many great books. I can't give you just one. Your favorite writer. Favorite writer. These days, love uh, love Anthony Lane of The New Yorker. Love his movie reviews. Favorite tennis writer. Favorite tennis writer. I think Tigner does a great job. I really enjoy reading Steve week to week. I think I sometimes miss miss him at the tournaments, but I think his his perspective is very very good, and uh, and I feel like uh, he does a really good job. Yeah. 
Where do you go for your tennis news? All over. One of the, one of the advantages I have, uh, I got plenty of limitations, but one of them, I speak Spanish and I speak French. Obviously, Google Translate's uh, changed the world somewhat, but to be able to read a lot of tennis writing over 30 years in those two languages has been extremely helpful to me. Obviously, covering Roland Garros and the French Open, being able to speak the language and, and be able to read L'Equipe, the great French sports publication every day for all those years has been tremendously helpful to my perspective and understanding. And I think really helped me stay interested in the game. Do you save your credentials? I didn't at the beginning, but I do now. I got a big, big case full of them that's in, in my closet and someday they'll come out of there and get organized. And everyone's got them in a box in their closet. Do you have the worst tennis experience? Do you have a worst experience on the job? Do you have just like a totally tragic day where... Just, totally tragic, no, but <laughs> a 1990 U.S. Open, my, my second slam after covering Wimbledon in 1990 and having it be a dream, Sampras makes this great run. And about, I'm what, you know, 24 years old and getting down the stretch, getting ready for the final and Sampras is getting ready to play. And I herniated disc in my back. Um, old tennis injury, just brutally painful. I can't even walk. So I have to spend a couple days at the end of the U.S. Open in a hotel room in New York, just basically in full recline mode, fighting through massive pain. And just as a, at that stage, all you want to do is be there out there and be in the action. Uh, that was brutal. I made it out for the final, but it was, um, it was like writing. And, and my memory is, is pain, not, not the beauty of Pete Sanford. Agony. Best experience? Is there a best moment? Well, my wife is French. She's from Paris. And being able to walk out the door of our apartment in the years I lived in Paris and walk a few blocks and enter the gates of Roland Garros and go to work and watch great clay court tennis. This is back in the 90s, especially. Although it's, I, I still, still have a place in Paris. I spend a lot of time there. I think the connection to that tournament and all the things it means to me and the signposts of my own life, that is, that's been my best tennis experience. That's fantastic, man. Tennis Twitter. Uh, Double-edged sword, man. I could just leave it there for you. Double-edged sword. This is the last question in the 10-ball scramble. What is your advice to a budding tennis writer? Well, one, be very resilient because it's a damn tough niche to break into. There's hardly any full-time jobs in it that are high quality. And I don't see any prospect of that changing in the near term. And unless your inner voice is shouting at you, screaming at you that this is what you are meant to do, I would definitely have some strong backup options. But if it's shouting at you and you know that's what you're supposed to do and that is your calling and you feel that connection to the game and you're a good writer and a hard worker, go for it. Let's move into the fifth set. This is the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just one swing of the racket without any aggravation, what might it be? Well, I'm not sure you're going to be surprised by this after this conversation. Yeah, I know. I think uh, get everybody into a room who's got, you know, a, an acronym that they're in charge of and not let them out until they've agreed on a, a more unified structure and making tennis hit fully at its weight or hopefully above its weight by unifying more and giving, you know, away some of your power for the greater good.
Chris Clary, this has been a long time coming. I can't thank you enough. When I started negotiations to uh, get you on the show, you mentioned that you were in the middle of a, a big project. Do you care to share? <laughs> I'm on book leave right now, Craig, and I'm I'm very excited. It's going to be a uh, focused on the, this era in men's tennis, and uh, yeah, I've got a I've got a several month book leave. I'll be back in the spring, and uh, I am fully focused on that. And first book I've written in over 20 years, and the first real chance I've had to dig into a you know, major project like this. So I'm I'm really excited. Working title. Um, the working title is is the master and it's based around Federer, but, um, it'll be more than that, I hope. And, uh, yeah, should be, so it's a pretty, pretty daunting project in a lot of ways, but it's, uh, I feel like I've been, I've had a real good seat for this era in men's tennis in particular, and and I'm excited to try to bring it out in in a, in a new and in-depth way. Fantastic, man. That's a great, that's a great way to, close out and begin this new year i think that's fantastic nobody nobody can do a better job of that than you well i don't know about that but i'm gonna get a shot at it and i think that's great i'm sure others will get some swings too but i it's nice to get a swing and and i feel like uh these guys in this era i've gotten a chance to really get to know some know them on on a journalistic level so got some good material and people have been very generous with their time and hoping it'll be a good product but as you know it's you're in the kitchen. You got to cook as best you can and hope the dish is good. Hey, man, enjoy the holiday season and, you know, stay safe in this um, unusual moment. And just like I said, I can't thank you enough. Christopher Clary, you are released. <laughs> thank you, Craig. All the best to you. Huge thank you to Christopher Clary. And thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Once again, a red take complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. They are at A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com. The towels are an unbelievable tennis gift, an unbelievable yoga gift, an athletic towel. They're very cool. Use my code SHAP20 in all caps to receive a 20% discount. We're still taking orders for the tennis t-shirt of the year, the quarantine classic. It's a throwback to the junior tennis tournament shirts we'd get when we were kids. We're taking orders for the Blanc, the Terrebatu, and the Bear. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. And listen, happy holidays to everyone. This was one hell of a year to say the least. And for me, the best part was hosting the podcast and interacting with my listeners. If you have not done it yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Share the show with your friends. Max Lowe edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next year with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.